All right, my brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, and this morning I'd like to read from verses 7 through 11. Isaiah 61, verses 7 through 11. Please stand with me and hear the very word of God. Isaiah 61 and verse 7. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Amen. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father God, we want to see the vision. We want to understand your vision for us, for the body of the church of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you would open this up for us, that we would share in this, and that we would rejoice in it ourselves, here and now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Here in these words, God is speaking to us. God speaks to us. God the Father speaks Two times, three times in the Gospels. And then Jesus speaks as well throughout the Gospels. And throughout much of Scripture, we get narrative or historical record of things that went on. But that is interrupted at points with God stepping in and speaking to us. And so when you read the red letters and the black letters of the Bible... Either way, you're hearing God speaking. God is speaking. And when E.F. Hutton speaks, none of us listen. But when God speaks, everybody listens. I was hoping somebody would complete that sentence. So this morning, we're going to hear... From the heart of God. We're going to hear his will, his heart, his thinking for us. And so if you haven't listened to anybody this whole week, besides your own thoughts or demons or some bad spiritual forces suggesting things to you, I would encourage you this morning to listen to this. This is the word of God. It's God speaking to us, giving us his his vision, in this case for his church, for the church of Jesus Christ. The grand purpose of God in history This is his plan, his purpose. He has set out this amazing and and wonderful vision for the church of Jesus Christ. And he displays it to the world. Part of it, in Ephesians 3, we find he displays it to the principalities and powers. God is showing off the church to the principalities and powers. The angels are amazed. The demon world is is amazed and he, they know exactly what's going on in the church in Pakistan, in South Korea, in India, and in Nigeria. The, the demons understand this and they are in awe of what God is doing. Now what about us? Now what about us? That's the question I have for all of us today. Is, this is God's purpose. Demons are amazed. The angels are blown away. What God has done in the church. But what about us? What about you and me? 
Are we catching the vision of what God is doing in his church? Now, how do we take the passage in Isaiah 61? Is God speaking to Old Testament Israel? Is this just all about Old Testament Israel? So it's irrelevant to us. Some, some might take it that way. This is for some future people of God. Or is this for you and me and what we're doing here in this building as we gather together as the Ecclesia of Christ? How do we take this? Is this for us? Is God speaking to us? Is this the vision for us? Is this something that we are to capture ourselves? And I would say that's exactly what is happening here because verse 1 is fulfilled in Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. So if you flip to Luke 4, 14... And I encourage you to do that one more time, just because if you see it in God's word, it means so much more than to hear it from me. So flip to Luke 4 and verse 14, and you compare this with the first verse of Isaiah 61, and what do you find? Well, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, is what the first verse of this chapter says. In Luke 4 and verse 14, we find that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. You see that? Luke 4 and verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Isaiah 61 and verse 1? Well, jump down four verses. Jesus gets up in front of that synagogue in Nazareth, and what does he say? He reads from this very passage. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In Luke 4.14, we read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. In verse 18, Jesus gets up and reads this passage and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, sits down and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So let me ask you, does Isaiah 61 apply to us or not? Does Isaiah 61 apply to Jesus or not? This has imminent relevance to all of us In the 21st century today, this was initiated in the ministry of Jesus Christ and then brought to full fruition at Pentecost 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. This is the kingdom of God come on earth. This is the great and awesome vision for which Jesus came to accomplish and he has not failed it, neither has the Holy Spirit. So if anybody said the Holy Spirit can't quite pull off Isaiah 61 and verse 11, you're wrong. You're saying Jesus didn't do it, failed, couldn't quite accomplish the vision of Isaiah 61. That's not true. He came to do it and he did it. Okay, let's keep going through this passage, verses 2 and 3. This is a review from the last message. So ever so briefly, verses 2 and 3, proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord to give the beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. This is the renewing, this is the restoring, this is all the R words, repairing, redeeming, reforming, restoring the years the locusts have eaten, all the R words. This is what Jesus came to do. Spirit of God poured out upon him the sharing of the gospel message and the outpouring of the redemptive work of Jesus upon the church of Jesus Christ. In the spiritual barren lands, in the desolate valleys, in the deserts of a burned-out religiosity of Old Testament Israel, or the the, uh, burned-out religiosity of modernism, secular doubt, pharisaical hypocrisy, where the ravages of sin has done its dirty work over the last 200 years of American history, whatever it is, Jesus has come to redeem. He's come to plant the gardens and the ashes. He's come to bring about a fruitful garden in the wilderness of of dried out religiosity in the Western world. Jesus has come to establish his church, to rebuild the old ruins, to raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. That's verse 4, very similar to Isaiah 58, 12. Those that are of you, that is of the church, will build the old waste places. Now remember, you in the passage is the church. So I have it in your outline there before you. Just read it with the church put right in there. The church is you. They is the church in verse 4. And then on into verse 5 through 7. Strangers shall stand and feed the church's flocks. And the sons of the foreigner shall be the church's plowmen and their vine dressers. 
But you and the church shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the church, the servants of our God. You, the church, shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. In their glory, the church shall boast instead of shame. For the church, the church shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, the church shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, the church shall possess double everlasting joy shall be theirs. That's for the church. That's for us. That's for us to say amen to. That, yeah, that this, this is applied wherever Jesus establishes his church and wherever redemption has happened in the hearts and souls and lives of individuals and families. A couple of things from these verses. Again, this is just review, but the first is that the Gentiles will become the pastors and shepherds in the church. You see that? The Gentiles. They are the plowmen, the vine dressers, the evangelists, the church planters, the shepherds. The Gentiles. Now, that's shocking for a couple of reasons. If you go back to 700 BC, I mean, why is that so shocking that Nebuchadnezzar is going to become this amazing evangelist for Yahweh God? Well, actually, he kind of was there for a few chapters. So, but it is somewhat of a shock to the system that those Gentile nations soaked in paganism should, uh, should become the pastors of the church of Jesus Christ in the year 2022, 2023. That proud Gentile should ever want to humble themselves to serve the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. It wasn't as if the Gentiles were thinking, hey, this is where we're headed. But also the Gentiles, remember, in the Old Testament era, were strangers to the covenant of the promises. They had, we had Gentiles fornicators. That's what they were doing. You look at what the Gentile world does. and You walk into Patrick's Ireland in the year 430. What would you find? Human sacrifice. Uh, people battling each other, tribes battling each other in the nude. Fornicators, idolaters, people who perform human sacrifice to false gods, adulterers. Homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, such were some of you, Paul says. They would become the shepherds in the church of Jesus Christ. This is a shocking thing. It was amazing in our minds to think about John G. Payton going to the New Hebrides, and within, what, 10 years, guys who used to eat other people, cannibals, were serving the Lord's table. That's, that's a shocker, that, that these were the elders, these were the pastors. These, these, these were the Gentiles that were now in the church, the vine dressers and the shepherds in the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is an amazing thing. The Gentiles who walked in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. And brothers and sisters, that was us. This is us. This is our world, the Gentile world of the United States of America, we understand this, they become the pastors, they become the shepherds, they become those who serve the body of Christ in the New Testament church. Move on, number two. Just review here, but the church will no longer be an embarrassment, no longer a shame to God, to itself. But the church will be glorious. Children, here's their first point. God wants a glorious church. Israel was just embarrassment. Just embarrassing. Think about Israel in the Old Testament. Almost a perpetual embarrassment. Nobody really wanted to talk about what's going on in Israel. Just shameful. When they don't reflect the power of God working. And the church is so hypocritical and scandals just multiply. And the teaching is impoverished. That's embarrassment. Think about the church being an embarrassment. Has the church ever been an embarrassment? You ever read the newspapers? Anybody ever read the newspapers? And you just kind of, you're embarrassed for a moment. You know what it's like to be kind of embarrassed for the church. Well, here, the people of Israel, the Old Testament people of Israel, they're set free from Egypt, but then they wanted to go back to Egypt. And then they died in the wilderness. The entire generation passed away in the wilderness. The people of God are shameful when they're supposed to inherit the promised land by the power of God, but end up capitulating the very sins that brought God's judgment down upon the Canaanites. That's embarrassing. That's shameful. It's embarrassing when they went into exile, subservient to the rotting out Gentile nations that would eventually receive the judgment of God upon themselves. That's just shameful. Just the, the, the Old Testament church was so embarrassing. But God's honor was at stake. 
We see this throughout the prophets, don't we? God's honor was at stake. God's committing himself to this people. But here they're embarrassing. Him, his word, his covenant, just an embarrassment. But that's why we read in verse 3 that all of this is coming about that he may be glorified. God's committing himself to this. He's bound himself to the covenant. And then verse 7, instead of your shame, you will have double honor. Again, this is the promise to the to church upon the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God at Pentecost. Let's move on to our passage this morning. I want to focus in on this. Verse 8, this is the focus. We'll take this focus for just a moment because, again, this is the, the heart of God. This is the driving motivation, the objective, the, the plan, the vision that God has committed himself to. This, this is what is happening. Verse 8, read it. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. God, he wants justice. He wants a commitment to his justice, his judgment, his righteousness upheld by his own people. He doesn't want this robbery for the burnt offering, reminiscent of Malachi chapter 1. I'll read that in just a moment. But there's, an, a, there's this sacrifice, the burnt offering that's pretended, yet, yet it turns out to be robbery. It turns out to be a fake piety. Children, God does not want a fake church. He doesn't want a sham. He doesn't want a fake, a hypocrisy, a mere external appearance of some life, some spiritual piety, but there's really nothing there. God doesn't want shiny, happy people. God doesn't want shiny, happy people. And, and you know, a recent caricature of American evangelicalism produced by Amazon, but it's not all caricature. That's the thing that's painful about this, is that there is some degree of caricature, but it's not all caricature. God doesn't want shiny, happy people. And American religion has produced a ton of hypocrisy, cults, fake religionists, especially out of the 19th century. Much of this is rooted in the 19th century. The fake revivals and such that occurred in the burned-out district in New York and you know the history of all of this, but it, it was the shiny, happy people of American religion that was produced, and so much of it's been inherited by the 20th century. Major media today is upset with the fundamentalist Christians. But I commented on this to my wife this morning. I said, you know what? I don't believe they were fundamental enough. I don't believe they were radical enough. I think that's the issue. It was too superficial. It didn't get to the core. It came out as an appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof. There's too much of that in American religiosity. And God is done with it. And so are we. There comes a point at which we as God's people need to say, we're done with hypocrisy and the sham religion that is so much a part of American life. I don't believe that so much of these so quote-unquote fundamentalists are fundamental enough or radical enough. We, we're done with man's sovereignty and his decision for salvation, whatever is decision. That man is going to be sovereign. No, God is sovereign. We're not sovereign over our children's behavior, our children's salvation, etc., etc. No, no, no. God is sovereign. Man plants. Somebody else waters. God brings forth the increase. Man's rules versus God's laws. There's too much of man's rules involved in this fakey externalism. You all know that. It's, it's fake. It's the emphasis of man's rules over God's law. God's law rejected, yes, by a majority of so much of American Christianity. They're afraid to even bring out God's law. But then there isn't that centrality of the gospel either. There's a separation of gospel and law, justification and sanctification. The gospel isn't core. The gospel isn't preeminent. We, we, we don't find folks getting back to the gospel nearly enough. It's just, it's just not radical enough. We're not radical about sin. We're not radical about our need for a savior. We're not radical about Jesus. We're not radical much, much of any of this. That's what's happened to American religiosity and it's created a shiny, happy people. Shame on American religion.
If God says, I will direct their work in truth. Malachi 1.14, same kind of thing. Cursed be the deceiver in his flock. A male takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So Malachi is touching on the hypocrisy that eventually goes virile by the time you get into the first century and Jesus shows up. It's the same problem. It's this hypocrisy. It's this half-heartedness in, in, in worship and half-heartedness in service and, and a, an okayness with the superficial. But let me say this. Our God is relentlessly committed to eliminating all hypocrisy out of his church. He, and he will not stop until he does it. He will burn it with fire. He will do whatever it takes. He will try the church of Jesus Christ in this nation. He will burn it and burn it and burn it until he has burned out the hypocrisy. And I say, good riddance. Amen. Make it happen. We must be relentlessly insistent on the real thing as well. There's ever been a time for God's people in America to wake up and say, yes, we will relentlessly pursue every vestige of hypocrisy that I find in my own life. We'll begin with ourselves always that we need to be hunting out this hypocrisy, rooting it out, relentlessly committed to the process. We want the power of God doing the work, not the power of man. Not the emotional contrivances in the services. Not, not the kind of whipping up some kind of a, a call to the altar and trying to somehow emotionally contrive people into the kingdom of God or whatever it is. We don't need to see any more of the work of man putting together a fakey little appearance of religiosity. We need the power of God and we will stand, we will wait, we will pray until it comes. Do we want our children turning into shiny, happy people without the power of God, the love of God, the Holy Spirit of God transforming them from the inside out. I don't think so. Don't need any of this shiny, happy stuff. Kids, don't smile if you're just pretending joy. That's shiny, happy people. No, don't, don't smile if you're just pretending it. No. Smile if you've got the real heart-deep experience of Holy Spirit joy in your life that no matter what happens, no matter what their circumstances are, that, that you're going to continue to experience that joy in the fire and the trial of your life. And, and you know what that's like. And you know that supernatural joy in your life. Don't, don't paste a smile on yourself if you don't experience that real Holy Spirit joy. It has to be the real thing. And don't say, I love you, if you don't. Don't say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is what I'm talking about. I'm talking, talking about being truthful. New Testament epistles come out strongly against hypocrisy. First of all, with Ananias and Sapphira, how does God react to the first instance of hypocrisy People presenting themselves to be a little better, a little shinier than they really were. How does God react to that? He killed them. That seems to be, some people think that's an overreaction. No. God won't have it. It's got to be the real thing. We're not mass producing this Ananias Sapphira business. No, no, it has to be the real thing. That's, that's, that's what we see throughout the epistles. And the acts of the apostles. Brothers and sisters, we can't allow for any vestige of hypocrisy in ourselves, untruthfulness, self-righteousness, or any man-made efforts to prop up an appearance of religion and piety. And we can do that in our language. We can do it in our prayer life. We can do it in our behavior. We can do it in our church life, our showing up at church. There's a little bit of that deception and hypocrisy creeps into all of us. But we've got to wage a campaign against every iota of fakiness. We cannot tolerate it, my friends. If you don't have the power over your sin in your life, don't pretend like you do. That's the worst thing you can possibly do. I can overcome this pornography problem in my life. I can do this. I can do this. 
No, you can't. And I think every single member in this church has walked with us for the last 5 or 10 or 15 years and battling our own sin and seeing there's no way we're going to overcome these things in our own power. Absolutely, we've only proved that to ourselves uh, 14,647 times. Right? I mean, we know this. If there's one data point we have, it's, it's going to take the power of God or bust. That's what we've concluded. If you, if you have no fear of God or very little reverence for God or interest in His worship, very little sense of God's awesomeness, or if you have no real love for God or not very much or very little faith in Him, why, why fake it? Why not just say, you know what, I come into worship and I don't feel very reverential. I just sit there and think about myself the whole service. Or, you know, just, I'm saying be honest. That's all I'm saying. Honesty, exactly. Because if we can't be honest, we're not getting anywhere else. Does that make sense in the Christian life? Or any kind of life? I mean, anything in life. If you can't be honest in the outset, you might as well not go on with it. At least confess it. Get it out. You're concerned about it. What do you do? State the real condition of your heart and your life. Say, I'm concerned about it. I actually don't love God very much. I don't even know what the love of God is. To love somebody you can't see? To love His Word? To fear God? To be reverential of God who created the universe, the stars, etc.? I have no concept what that is. But I'm concerned about it. Well, see, at that point, I think the Holy Spirit may be working. Just There's a concern. So we're holding on to something there, and we're saying, okay, you're concerned. Well, my sense is, this is the point at which you pray. This is the point at which you confess it. You get it out before God. You say, God, I admit it to you. I don't have life in me. I don't have the power of God in my life bringing about a transformation, real repentance, hating the world, loving God. I just don't really relate to that. I hear it on Sunday. I just don't really relate to it. Confess it to God. Cry out to Him. Pray for more of it if you need to. Say with the psalmist, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Search me, O God. Know my ways. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the path everlasting. And that's my prayer too, brothers and sisters. I'm not just saying this, you know, to unbelievers here. I'm talking to believers. People who know there's still something lacking. Some sin, some lack of love and fearing God and, and these areas in which we should be growing and stuff. We, we need to lay this out before him and say, this is the issue for me. This is the issue. And there's a fair amount of hypocrisy. I have a pretty big talk, but not a very big walk something I brought out to parents and to myself recently is a lot of parents have a big talk, especially parents in a Christian home raising children. They have this big talk, but wow, the walk doesn't measure up to the talk. And, and so to the extent that there's a delta there, you follow me? Here's your talk. Here's your walk. There's a delta. That's to be confessed. It's sometimes hard to see it because you think there's this wonderful person, but you're not. And so there is a delta. And so confess every little piece of the hypocrisy. Let's engage a relentless pursuit of the real thing, the power of his resurrection, the power of the gospel. I'll tell you what we don't need. We don't need a gospelless power, and we don't need a powerless gospel. I'm done with that. A gospelless power, that's somebody you do it on your own. Come on, you can do it. Pick it up. Make it happen, dude. No, we don't need a gospelless power, and we don't need a powerless gospel. Either way, we need the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can transform a cannibal into an elder of the church of Jesus Christ inside of 12 years. That's what we need. Amen. Hallelujah. We cry out for that. We look up to God for it, right? We don't look anywhere else. We're looking to God. We're looking up for this. How often are efforts put into polishing up the externals? But what about the internals? What about the idolatries of the hearts? What is there to be done about the unforgiving spirit? And we all know what that is when it creeps up in ourselves. Or the self-centeredness and the lack of love. And some say they attend the best church in town. You might hear this from time to time. Well, we attend the best church in town. That's a conservative church. We go to the best church. But their family is a wreck. Their relationships are tenuous or broken down. Selfishness, pride, lust, complaining, strife dominates in the home. 
and rebellion among the kids just simmers under the surface and erupts when the teens leave the home. How many times have you seen that in the history of American Christianity? Only 1.8 million times in the last 10 years? What is, what's going on here? I think, I think that family just needs to be honest. We're not a nice little Christian family. There comes a point at which you need to step back and say, we're not a nice Christian family. We're not. Every vestige of hypocrisy, brothers and sisters, I plead with you. I plead with God that he would open us up for us. Because this is all of us by nature. This creeps in. You know it creeps in. Our family needs Jesus. We are so messed up. Oh man, I'm so hoping I will hear this more so in this body. We are so messed up. Brother, I did not realize. We need Jesus, the Son of God, to go to the cross, nails in the hands and feet, because we are messed up. And so that, that, that the sense of, of need, that sense of urgency that this, this is precisely what we need. Jesus just exactly suits us sinners. That somehow that sinks in. Or a young man from somewhere else had a conversation with us this week. He said he, he left the church when he was in college because it was too bubbly. Interesting. I thought that's interesting. I've been thinking about it a little bit. Too glib. Now, he left the church. He got even in worse trouble. Okay, he should have stayed in this bad church. Would have been fine. So somehow, maybe by the word of God, by the Holy Spirit outpouring, there would have been something that would have happened and the church would grow in some areas and such. And yes, churches are imperfect. We're starting out. We're not the best church in town. That's number one. You're not a nice little Christian family and we're not the best church in town. Amen? That's where we start out. But what do we need? We need Jesus. We need the Spirit of God to open our eyes. Yes, we are too bubbly at points or too glib. There's not enough serious joy rooted in the fear of God and true faith in God and true love for God. What we need is more seriousness, more serious joy, more serious sincere faith and love and joy. Hypocrisy so very deeply embedded into American religion. But what does the New Testament tell us? Just a couple of verses there. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Boy, it's so easy for love just to have the, the integrity of a block of cheese. And people call it, talk about cheesy. So why, why cheesy? Well, because cheese has all these holes in it. You get a block of cheese out with holes in it. You're like, here's my love. Well, it's got all these holes in it. What's the deal with that? Well, because my love is cheesy. Yeah, my, my love is, is, is lacking in integrity. Doesn't hope all things, believe all things, endure all things. That's not really my love. I, I'm pretty self-centered. Pretty much puffed up. Pretty much, yeah, a lot of that. I, I'm just, I'm, I, I, my love is pretty cheesy. Let love be without hypocrisy, 2 Corinthians 1, in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. In 1 Timothy 1, 5 again, now the purpose, and this word is very important, to tell us, it's a word used there. I think that's a critical word, not translated very well in the KJV or the NKJV, better in the ESV. Now the purpose, the telos, Telos is target. Telos is the word used for target. You know, you're aiming an arrow right at the center of that target, right? That's your telos, your target. So the telos, the objective, the goal of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Not, not shiny, happy people. No, no, love from a pure heart. Core love, love for God that eventually breaks out into love for mom and dad, love for the children, self-sacrificial love is Jesus, and we lay down our lives for the body of the church of Jesus Christ. 
the, the telos, the goal, the objective of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Again, over and over again, we find this throughout. Perhaps you sense that Sunday ritual is very routine and informal. You come to church on Sunday. And people sometimes say, I'm just not getting fed. I'm not getting much out of the Word at this church. And, and that may be very well the case. It is so often in our Christian lives we plateau or we decline, backslide, and so forth. We don't get much out of the Word. It seems like the gas line's plugged up, so the carburetor's not really getting any gas. And this stymies your growth. What is it that's choking up the system in your life? Why can't you get to first base? Well, here's what Paul says, or Peter says first, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, Peter says, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, there it is, laying aside the hypocrisy, the envy, the evil speaking, as newborn babes now desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. But you see, the first step is to lay aside all the garbage. You can't come in here until you lay aside the garbage. There's got to be a laying aside of this. Otherwise, your ears are going to be all stopped up, and there is a, a plug in your gas line, and you're not receiving anything. James 1.21, something similar. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So that's a necessary step towards receiving the word. This deceit, this hypocrisy, this evil speaking, the pride, the bad attitudes, that gets in the way. That's the blockage in the gas lines of the church. And I think this happens in our church too from time to time. And there may be too much hypocrisy. Just too much. The delta between the talk and the walk is just too much. That's got to be closed down. There's got to be some equating here in a person's life. There's too much deceit and evil speaking and malice and envy that is bad attitudes about brothers and sisters in the body. You can't come in here and get fed if you've got a bad attitude to somebody. Ain't going to happen. You've got to lay aside the malice, lay aside the evil speaking, lay aside the hypocrisies, unless if, if you're going to receive the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. So be honest about your own condition. Confess what you can see. You can see a tiny bit of sin in your own life. You might see in others. But if you can see a tiny little bit of sin in your own life, confess it. And let's engage a war in hypocrisy at every level, brothers and sisters. Engage a war on all mere sentiment about the gospel. That has reduced the gospel to some weak, sentimental, powerless thing. Sometimes the music ministries will, will lead you to that or you get too absorbed into the sentimentality of American Christianity through music and such. And, and it's just too sentimental. It's too gooey and there's not enough power. There's, there's no power in the message. Just not feeling it, not receiving it. Engage a war on deception, blame shifting, evil speaking of others, all the pride and stuff in your own life. Fall on your face before God's word and just cry out, forgive me, oh God, forgive me. Teach me today. From your word. All right, we'll move on to the last two verses. This is the response of the church, our response to the vision that God has for his church. Verses 10 and 11 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and his bride adorns herself with her jewels, as the earth brings forth its bud as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. As God brings about the real deal, God adorns His church with the authentic and the beautiful. The, the, the whole painted thing doesn't work. It's, it's a beautiful thing for God. It's not some external sort of impression, the kind of thing that the world is very good at, you know, painting the outside and all that. No, no, God brings forth a real beautiful thing from the inside all the way out to the outside. There, there's the authentic and the beautiful. It's God initiated. It's the work of God. This isn't Tetzel hawking indulgences in the 17th century. This isn't the Revoice Conference in the 21st century. This is the real deal. The power of God transforming lives 
giving us a new identity, a new orientation all around. Not the powerless whateverness that seems to be coming out of so much of American Christianity. Gets beyond the superficialities, gets to the substantial. Such that, you know, when you see it in your children, you see it in your children and you say to yourself, it's not me that did any of that. God did that. There's only one explanation for what happened in this brother's life or this sister's life. I only have one explanation for it. God. God did it. It was the power of God. It was the work of God. And you are convinced of it. You've seen the work of man and you're not impressed. It's all around you. But when God does the work, oh man, you just say, God did it? I don't think there's a question in any Christian's mind when they see the work of God that it was the work of God. Four things. We'll close with this. But I have an application too, so bonus, right? So he beautifies the church with four things. This is how verses 10 and 11 wrap up the chapter. Salvation. That's number one. Real salvation. I mean really getting saved. Salvation from what? From sin. You shall call his name Jesus, Joshua. Yahweh saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. When God comes, he saves you from your sins. And, and, and you know that it comes only from God, from the bondage of your sin. Redemption from slavery, that's number one. And God makes his church beautiful, beautiful garments of salvation, robes of righteousness, preparing the bride, the, the holy bride of the church of Jesus Christ. Prepared for the groom. That's exactly what Ephesians 5.26 says. This is a parallel passage. No question. Jesus is sanctifying and cleansing the church with the washing of water by the word with the intent to present to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. What is this clothing? We don't think about clothing enough. He clothes the church in this beautiful salvation the idea of enveloping, submerging, utterly wrapping the church up in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it's a glorious thing. Worthy of joy, praise. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. That's number two, real joy. Real salvation, real joy. It's the real deal. Number three, real righteousness. And number four, real praise. And this will be evident to the nations. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Not, not the church providing fodder for worldly news agencies who want to do more investigative reports on the scandals going on in the church. No, no. No, no. The churches in this community will see righteousness and praise springing forth such that the nations will see it and they will not be able to ignore it. And I believe that that has happened in the history of the Christian church. That's why taking the world for Jesus, taking Asia for Jesus, taking Africa for Jesus, taking Europe for Jesus, something happened over 2,000 years and it was phenomenal, utterly phenomenal. Don't let anything get in the way of, of the vision of what God brought about. But I want to close with ten things that bring us joy. It's just application at the end of the sermon here. Ten things that really do bring joy and real joy. So here they are. The first thing that brings joy is mourning. That is weeping or crying. One of the reasons there isn't joy in the churches is because there's no weeping. So there has to be mourning. You walk into the church and 
Everybody's got a smile pasted on, but there's never been mourning over sin. That's a problem. That's, you've got a shiny, happy thing happening there. That's, that's not real joy. Mourning, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I am concerned as a pastor that there, there isn't enough mourning in the church or rejoicing, either one. But we have to understand that this, this is the cycle. This is the way it works. The road or the way to joy is by mourning. There, there has to be this dynamic in the body. There, there has to be a penetration of the word, a crying out, brothers, what shall we do to be saved? There has to be a, a pain in the heart. If you come into a church and you sense a lot of mourning and people are torn apart and they're not looking happy, that's a praise God moment. I think that's a praise God moment because we're right on the cusp of the comfort that's soon to come. And we see this, I've seen it in my ministry a number of times where a brother or a sister just appears not to be joyful for a period of two, three, four years while they're under the convicting work of the Spirit of God. But I tell my brother pastors, hang in there. Hang in there. This is the process. There's a there's this period of this morning. Now, the time of mourning will eventually be interrupted by the, 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 the rejoicing that comes in, in, in the dawn. But for now, we're going to see this. That's all right. There needs to be more of this. We as pastors are very interested in more mourning. And more, more, more of our brothers struck to the heart that the problem in their families is them. It's you. The problem in your life is you. It's your sin that's brought about this. And that, that you begin to feel the sword in your gut. And then you, you feel the pain of it. And you feel the conviction of it and the guilt of it and the weightiness of your sin that someday you will feel the weightiness of grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ rushing in and setting you free. And now you enjoy the freedom that is freedom indeed. Oh, my brothers and sisters, we need to be a church that really experiences serious mourning and serious joy. The true import of the words of the Son of God, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will but thine be done. Oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then we follow that through to it is finished. And then to he is risen. We have to come through this cycle. We have to go through the period of, of a sense of the wrath of God. Poured out upon the Savior for us. And then we, we hear those beautiful words, it is finished. And then he is risen. And then he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. We have to make it through the first and the second and the third day all the way to the third day. Oh, we need the serious mourning, but serious joy. And then secondly, joy comes by the Holy Spirit. And I say, this is a supernatural thing. It has to be supernatural. What's the difference between kind of the happy, clappy, I've been entertained a little bit, got a few of my happy nerve ending stimulated a little bit, versus Holy Spirit joy. What's the difference? It's supernatural. It comes from outside. It comes from above. It comes from God. And it's so different than any kind of happiness you've ever experienced before. It's a joy that remains, as we already mentioned, through the trials, through the fire. And you know what? You're in the fire and you're amazed that you're not burned up. You're amazed that you are experiencing joy. That's supernatural Holy Spirit endowed joy in your life. Okay, number three, very quickly. Other sinners repenting. That brings joy. It's the whole point of Luke chapter 15. The entire point of this is not so much the reception of the Father, but the joy the Father experienced with the return of the Son and then the celebration that occurred with the angels in heaven. And... Uh, Ideally with the church of Jesus Christ. And yet there was way, way too much glumness or not an anticipation for another party, another dance, more shouts of joy as the next prodigal makes his way down the driveway. Uh, there just isn't that joy in so many churches. 
Because there isn't this expectation of redemption. That's the point. Is that yes, the world's a terrible place, but there are people coming down the driveway. There are people coming down, repenting of their sin, turning to God, crying out, God have mercy on me a sinner. That's a beautiful thing. It's happening everywhere. Number four. Fourth thing that brings us joy is Jesus. Jesus brings us joy. That's 1 Peter 1.8. Whom having not seen, that is, you haven't seen Jesus, but you love Him. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So there's something about Jesus that causes joy in a Christian's life. Does your heart leap for joy when you hear the word? Jesus. What happens when you hear Jesus? Let's talk about Jesus. Around the dinner table. What Jesus has done for us. Does that, does that go, your heart leap and you go, oh yeah, he's the savior of the world. He saved me. He is the essence of compassion and grace. He's the perfection of glory, the beauty of God, the glorious king who conquers all his enemies and whose kingdom is eternally ever glorious. We could just stop there, couldn't we? Let's move on to number five. Rejoice. Here's the fifth thing that brings you joy. Listen. Your name is written in heaven. And here from Luke chapter 10, the 70 come back and they're all excited. They're tossing demons one way and the other. There's sort of these superhero Christians getting the ministry done. You know, coming back from some amazing conference in Virginia or something. Like, man, we just, poo, we made it happen. Whatever. The, the ministry experience that, that you get where you think something big really happened. Jesus said, rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Because here's why. Because Jesus knows the ups and downs. I mentioned this last week. There's the ups and flows. There's the 1,000 that came forward, 5,000 showed up, and 4,988 left. I'm trying to do the math from John 6, right? What happened to the 4,988? We had this big ministry going up on the mountain, and all the people were fed, they were all happy, and now I'm down to 12 again. What does Jesus say? Oh, despite all the ebbs and flows, the gains, the losses, two steps forward, two steps back, your sickness and health, short-term improvement, and then you die. Rejoice your names are written in heaven. Number six, persecutions bring you joy. And the trial of your faith, Peter says this, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found in the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's something about the genuineness of faith. I mean real faith, tested in fire. That's gold. It doesn't burn. Gold doesn't burn in fire like wood hand stubble does. Gold doesn't burn. But when your faith is the real deal, and your faith is sincere, and you go through that trial, and God is turning up that fire, He, he wants that gold to be up, upwards of 99.97%. He, he wants a pure gold out of you. And that genuineness of faith, according to God, is the highest value in the world. Much, much more valuable than gold. And so if you're saying, well, I just want to live a life that's just lots of value and purpose, and I want the most I can possibly get out of this life here and now, I guess your best life now, whatever, put you through fire, burn up the, the, the dross and, and fire up the gold, and, and that's it, man. The best thing you get out of this life is hardcore gold, beautiful gold, faith formed in the fire. That's beautiful. You celebrate that kind of stuff. But that's only if you believe any of it. Number seven, seventh thing, seventh thing that brings you joy is the love of the Father. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. A sense of the privilege, a sense of the, the, the grace of God poured out on unworthy sinners. The fact that we are loved by God, a love that exceeds all loves, a love that never fails. A love that has loved you from all eternity and will love you into eternity forever and ever. Who cares that the world doesn't love you? The world doesn't even love itself. Who 
cares if somebody else has pulled their love away from you? That's not the value. The value is the love of God shed abroad in us. Number eight, the eighth reason why we are joyful. The eighth thing that brings us joy is the dead bodies of Pharaoh's armies blobbing up on the other side of the Red Sea. The dead bodies of Pharaoh's armies. Well, we see that throughout the Old Testament. You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. We rejoice as those that divide the spoil. What? Jesus broke the yoke, the oppressor, as in the day of Midian. He, he broke the yoke. He went and broke Satan's yoke. He pulled it apart, broke it into pieces. Our, our jo- Joshua has wrecked the enemy. He's, he set the captives free. He chased the Assyrian army away from the camp outside the city of Damascus. Four lepers out there feasting outside of the city while everybody else is cannibalizing each other in the city. Lepers just say, hey guys, we already won. Somebody needs to tell everybody, we've already won. The battle was won. Now let's get out there and divide the spoil. There's a rejoicing about that. There's a sense that we have the upper hand, that we are winning and we have won. Psalm 66, make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. But why? Verse 5, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. What did he do? Verse 6 of Psalm 66, he turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. Underline that in your Bibles. There we will rejoice in him. Why? Because we are on the other side of the Red Sea. See the dead, bloated bodies of Pharaoh's armies. We won. We're on this side of the resurrection. We're watching what God has already done. And we're saying, hallelujah. There we, as we view what is going on at the Red Sea or at the cross of Jesus Christ, there in that position, as we stand there, we will rejoice in thee. Rejoicing is what you do when you've been delivered from the most powerful army on earth. The Son of God has come. He took the great enemies of our souls and broke their necks with His bare hands. He did it. We rejoice in God's works, not man's works. Number nine, we rejoice because of the resurrection, the hope of heaven. Jesus said in Luke 6, 22, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you. But rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Okay? Leap for joy. Why? Because you have the hope of glory. And the hope of the resurrection. And then number 10. Tenth thing that brings you joy in this world is God's praise. Psalm 71, 23. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you and my soul which you have redeemed. We rejoice in praise. Sing. Sing praises to God throughout the day. Sing praises. Why? What God did. Your focus is on what God did, not what you did, what God did. And then you praise. And that only increases your faith in what he did and your joy in singing more praise to him. And that, my friends, is the joyful cycle of your life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we we want the real deal. Father, we want the real thing, the authentic thing. God, you alone can bring about the real salvation, real righteousness, real joy, and real praise in the assembly of the saints. You are nurturing this. You are building it. You have been doing this for 2,000 years since the outpouring of your Holy Spirit some 2,000 years ago. You build your church on real faith. Real love, authentic joy. Father, please, that we all would experience that, to know that. And to know that Jesus has already come. And that, God, if there needs to be more mourning, confession, a sense of need, and and a sense of import of what Christ did, that that just exponentially increases in the hearts and minds of those who come into this building every Sunday. God, increase it. Increase it. Oh, all that we would see the glory of it. Open our eyes 
to see the glory of your salvation that you brought through Jesus. God, that we would see the glory of it, the beauty of it in us, in us, this church, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's come to the Lord's table. Those of you visiting, uh, take a peek at the back of our bulletin. We have a little bit on how we practice the Lord's table here at the church. But again, I want to get back to this question. Why are we hoping? Why do we rejoice? This morning, I really do want to get to the point that we are rejoicing at this table. In some respects, when we confess our sins in the beginning of the service, there is a bit of of mourning, and and yet we are reminded of the promises of God, and then we come to the table to, to celebrate what Christ has done. But it's interesting that the joy did not come on the first day, it didn't come on the second day in Mark 16, and it didn't even so much come on the third day. Um, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. She went and told the disciples as they mourned and wept. They were mourning, they were weeping. But then what happened? They heard the report that came from the women. And when they heard that he was alive, they believed not. They didn't believe him. After that, he appeared in another form to two as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest of them. Neither did they believe. Them. So not not even hoping or rejoicing on the third day. Not happening. And afterwards, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they sat at the meat and abraded them with their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they believed not that them which had seen him after he was risen. So, and that's pretty much the end of Mark. That's <laughs> pretty much where it ends. Like, well, that's kind of a downer. The good news is that in 50 days, they get it. In 50 days, the Holy Spirit's poured out and they go, yeah, amen. So, so here's my question. At some point, you have to believe it. You know, it has to, it has to set in. You have to say, yeah. Okay. He did it. He, he won. He said it's finished. He's risen. He got us the victory. And now we are filled with hope and joy. The process is this. You've got to realize it first. You have to, you have to hear about it, which we talk about here. You have to realize it. You, you have to wake up to it. Then you have to believe it. Then you hope in it, and then you rejoice. Okay, that's the process. Where are you in this process? Where were they in this process? They had heard about it, and they did not believe it. But you you have to hear it, realize it, believe it, hope it, and rejoice in it. it has to, that process has to work its way out. And that joy comes by the Holy Spirit. It is an outstanding manifestation of Holy Spirit presence. And it's a joy that cannot be wrested away from you. The joy comes by an infusing hope, by a confident faith in the third day. Peter actually quotes this in his sermon. In Acts 2, Psalm 22, I'm sure my brother will share more on this. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he was on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Why? Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Okay, so the hope and the joy that comes in this passage is, first of all, Knowing something about God. Knowing something about God. God's Son died on the cross. Does God have the power, the love, and the interest to raise His own Son from the dead? Of course. Of course. He has all of that. Of course He will do it. Never a doubt in our minds. And secondly, He promised it. 
He said he would be raised from the dead. Jesus said it, what, three, four, five times, over and over again. By the way, the third day, not the first, not the second, the third day, I will rise from the dead. He said that. What part of third day don't you understand? Okay. And then what we have is the fulfilled promise of God in the death and resurrection of his son. In this, he sealed the deal. So when we take this cup and this bread this morning, I want you to think about how Jesus already did it. He's gone before us. We are still the church militant, granted. We're not in heaven yet. But Jesus has gone before us. He is the first fruits of those who died and rose from the dead. He went before us. And he... He got our redemption. It was a success. The resurrection was a certainty and is a certainty. God's promise of life is sealed for eternity for us. So our salvation, our resurrection, our eternal life is sealed. It cannot be reversed. It cannot be compromised. So believing in Jesus' resurrection with all its implications means my resurrection and my eternal life. That's why I'm so hopeful today. That's why you're hopeful. Even in a world of death, even in this world around us, we're hopeful. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus paid the price, so we know that our redemption price was paid. As sure as Jesus rose from the dead, I will rise from the dead. As sure as Jesus lives, we live now, and we will live forever. So as you take the cup, You say amen to all of that. You say amen. Jesus bought it with his own blood. And this is a representation of the blood that Jesus spent for my redemption. And he is alive and he shares his life with us today. Let's pray. Our Father, oh God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would attend this time. That that knowledge would give birth to faith. And faith to hope. And hope to joy. And just a sense of... This is true. This really happened. I I am eternally redeemed. I am eternally full of life. Life forevermore. Because of Jesus. Because he died and he rose again and lives forevermore. So will I. Father, help us to believe this. Holy Spirit, enable us to hope in this to rejoice in it. You are the spirit of joy. Pour out joy upon us as we take the cup and the bread today in Jesus' name.